This episode contains strong language throughout. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Diora, and this is Broccoli Book Club, a socially progressive podcast aimed at analyzing timely and thought-provoking reads. This is the Book Club episode, where each month I'm joined by two guests and we dissect a book within the context of our lives. You can read along with us, make suggestions, send in your thoughts and comments via voice note. It's like a real book club, but in a podcast. The episode format is split into three sections. We start at the front cover, where we talk about our first impressions and expectations. Then we delve into the actual book, And finally, end at the back where we focus on our reflections and takeaways. This month, we're discussing Mindfuck, Cambridge Analytica and the plot to break America. We're doing things a little differently. Ordinarily, this episode would be followed up by an interview with the author, Christopher Wiley. But unfortunately, he's hard at work on a new book. Maybe next time. I'm going to put my hands up and say, when the Cambridge Analytica scandal was exposed, I didn't fully understand what was going on. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. The Cambridge Analytica scandal was huge. And we still don't really know much about the way our data is harvested and used by social media platforms. As we spend less time outdoors and more time online, it's important to be aware of how social media platforms have evolved as well as their capacity to manipulate the way we think and act. So, what's Mindfuck all about? Delving into how the British political consulting firm, Cambridge Analytica, exploited Facebook data to manipulate elections, such as the EU referendum and the American presidential election in 2016, Christopher Wiley identifies as the whistleblower who exposed the whole scandal. In the book, he explains how Cambridge Analytica's American operations were driven by Steve Bannon's vision to change the country and funded by Robert Mercer's billions. All in all, the firm weaponized and wielded the massive store of data it had harvested on individuals, in excess of 87 million, to create chaos and set Americans against each other. Wiley is an unlikely figure at the centre of such an operation. Canadian and liberal in his politics, he was only 24 when he got a job with a London firm that worked with the UK Ministry of Defence. There, a team of data scientists were creating new tools to identify and combat radical extremism online. But somehow, those same tools were turned on their head and Cambridge Analytica was born. Wiley's decision to become a whistleblower prompted the largest data crime investigation in history. His story is both an expose and a dire warning about the way our own social media data can be used against us. Joining me in today's book club are Tristan Cross and Rene Richardson. Tristan is a multimedia creative whose work can be found in Vice, Wired, The Guardian and many others. And Rene is the CEO of Broccoli Content and the person who suggested reading this book. Now the intros are done, let's begin by discussing the cover of the book. I'm not a fan of the cover. I'm not a fan of the title. It makes it look like a kind of YA sci-fi book. 
and and the title makes it seem like one of those like the subtle art of not giving a fuck kind of yeah it does uh, <laughs> you're right <laughs> that's actually so true i think that's another reason why i wouldn't pick it up yeah because i'm like i read that book mine <laughs> looks like this oh <laughs> that's much better yeah okay. black and silver for all the shallow reasons of like why you'd get a book out your bag on a tube or transport or whoever and someone sees you reading something called mindfuck it just seems like you're reading some sort of weird dystopian rather than something that's about well, actually no it's, uh, it's about how algorithms influence people's uh, political no it's like i mean it's pretty but, dystopian yeah with the title like did you think mindfuck actually was quite suitable because i did i'm not gonna lie throughout reading it I just had to go away and be like, what the hell? And I used the word fuck a lot. I was like, what the fuck? There was a trend at the time when these books came out, like having fuck in all the titles. But it looks like they've gone for dystopian fiction kind of style cover, which is not kind of what it's about. It's, I think the X is kind of interesting because it ends on this. It's like a nice poignant thing that he writes about going to vote for the European elections or something kind of not that important but the act of voting physically it's not really brought up throughout the rest of the book and it just makes the book kind of look bizarre yeah now you've actually explained the x which never occurred to me that's exactly what they were going for <laughs> Rene, did you hear about cambridge analytica before picking up the book like i saw the stories and you know the exposés cambridge analytica and it was very much cambridge analytica facebook data i've not been on facebook for years so i was like nothing to do with me absolutely and tristan what about you pretty similar i think a lot of the coverage before it would either require you to read like a incredibly lengthy there was the big observer piece when it came out but i think everyone just kind of took away the headline cambridge analytica they've done brexit they did trump I think people for a while were just like, yeah, yeah, that seems true. But without people actually going into what it was they were actually doing, just that they've been doing some Machiavellian stuff in the back end, pressing some buttons and making some evil happen. Obviously, Cambridge Analytica was like, I'd say one of the worst things that have happened in the recent history of like politics and just the world. I just didn't know how someone who was so deeply involved in it and essentially, you know, created so much of it could write a book that made him come out as like an okay guy. But he did show how he kind of got swept away with that because he was clearly like into the tech. But like he gets to, you know, um, build systems and like, oh my God, we can use data and then we can do this thing and then we can... So he could have just been, you know, painting a picture for us to like him. I think there is an element of that was through my mind throughout because he's not like a guy that just knows numbers and nothing else. He's a kind of astute guy that obviously thinks quite deeply about all the moral and ethical things involved. He was being involved with all these people, Steve Bannon, Robert Mercer. He keeps meeting and befriending really right-wing reactionaries and being like, oh, yeah, but they're pretty interesting. He wants you to come away feeling like, oh, you know, he realised what he did was bad. He's contrite. But at the same time, he obviously is to a level uh, that he now has to, his actual life is kind of vaguely ruined or he makes it sound like that. Yeah, because he does know how to manipulate us. He knows. Oh, <laughs> that's very good. That's very good. But yeah, I guess like, I was just wondering if you had any particular expectations that it was written by the whistleblower rather than someone, say, you know, a Guardian journalist who observed the whole thing and pieced the puzzle together. Did you think that would affect the way the narrative would be told, obviously? He was like a big 
the face of all the things coming out and he was doing magazine cover shoots. I think the fact his image was used quite a lot. There was some sort of publicity attached to when it all came out. Chris Wiley, the guy, the whistleblower. I think there is some element within the book that is still like mythologizing of himself a bit. And he's casting all these people that were involved in Cambridge Analytica as kind of beyond the pale, whereas he's the guy that realized we've gone a bit far. To a level, I do think some of the book is kind of him still painting that picture of like there's a divide between him and his bosses. And maybe that is true. Yeah, well, I guess that's the thing. As the writer, he controls the narrative. He's very good at that. And I think when you're writing from a first person perspective, the reader can't help but be on your side because you're taking them through your eyes. So I think before reading it, I was quite cautious. I thought, well, he's obviously going to be biased in the way he tells the story. And actually, someone who's completely outside of the story might tell it very, very differently. We've reached a middle where we discuss the content of the book. I found this book slightly hard to keep up with, as it genuinely felt like a mindfuck that all of these things Wiley described actually happened in a liberal democracy. So I wanted to know if Tristan and Rene felt similarly. Honestly, it was just like, oh my God, I'm in the matrix. I need to delete everything now, but I can't because you need to stay in touch with people. Oh my God, they've got me. It just made me think, what is real? <laughs> Honestly. So you had an existential crisis <laughs> yeah. while reading it. Like, okay. is anything real? Tristan, what about you? I veered both ways because he's very like convincing. Also, there's just the element that he's like a kind of Forrest Gump type figure. Not in the like mental capacity, but in the, you know, it just like keeps appearing where he's just in the right place in loads of like history. So he starts and he's like a teenager basically and he's on the Obama campaign. Then he gets a job in Lib Dem's office when they've just formed a government. And then he's at Cambridge Analytica and he meets Steve Bannon and then he's meeting Robert Mercer and then he leaves Cambridge Analytica and he meets... Donald Trump before he'd even become the president. So all of that where you're going like, oh my God, every news item has traveled through this man's life. I guess in terms of my own question, what was going through my mind when I was reading Mindfuck? I obviously was really shocked at how little I knew. I swear this is me. Every every book I read on this podcast, I'm like, I'm so shocked at how little I knew. But no, really with this, it's just because, you know, I'm a journalist. I've, you know, most people who are journalists probably are like, yeah, I know about Cambridge Analytica, but do they really? I don't think so. And I think what was the most concerning thing for me as I was reading just all of this information that I was like, how was this allowed to happen? How was this allowed to happen? I just thought, but there is no way of ever really holding anyone accountable for this because it's so new, right? What they designed within Cambridge Analytica, like all these tools of data collection and trying to manipulate people's minds. It's so new that there are no laws against anything that they did. I guess it was just this disappointment. But I think that's the point of the book. I think he wanted to show that like Cambridge Analytica was like a seed. But if you've ever grown anything, you know, when you water it, it pollinates. So say you grow one lily, next year there'll be five. The year after that, there could be 10. So Cambridge Analytica doesn't exist as a company, but if people truly think that the algorithms that they created aren't being used now, that's naive. And I think 
when stories are reported where it's based around one company rather than the technology or what they're actually doing, that's how you look to hold one person accountable. And it's you can't hold anyone accountable. And the Alexander Nix, the CEO and stuff, he's gone. But all the things that Christopher Wiley designed can be used elsewhere. That's definitely like one of the big distinctions, I'd say, because there's two things I think the book's trying to do. And one of them, it does very well, and I think convincingly, which is paint how much your privacy and your data and whatever your digital footprint is being used by various actors that you don't even know or don't know why the kind of subtle ways in which your world is being influenced but i think there's the other thing where it's trying to make cambridge analytica the specific villain it's almost like this thing was fine up until cambridge analytica came mm. along and i think that's the weird part of the book as well is that he doesn't seem to have any issue with what he's doing initially he joins the liberal democrats basically to do the same thing he wants to deliver a liberal democrat victory by building the things he ended up building by the same kind of data manipulation they're doing all sorts of experiments with the data of people in the caribbean and then in africa and then it's only when it starts crossing over into like Brexit and Trump that he's suddenly like oh no, no this is bad because this is the democracy I live in <laughs> for me I think it's just it lifts the lid when you hear you know data privacy people talk about privacy and they're like well I've got nothing to hide I didn't do nothing um it's not about that <laughs> it's about if you're say you're online and you're shopping and you've got a headache you could be targeted to make yourself believe that you need this like certain amount of drug or you need this water to exercise. Do you know what I mean? And it's, do you need it? Is it real? Or are you being targeted? It's not just about I've committed a crime and oh no, you've got my data, you're going to find it. It's about, are we manipulated to a point where we believe things that we need to live that aren't real? Tristan, I want to go back to what you were saying, how we're so angry with, with Cambridge Analytica and in part maybe Christopher Wiley for creating this because we believe that the messages they were trying to perpetuate were so immoral uh, and all of this. But there's a part in the book where I just want to quickly read out. This is on page 144. He says, I was no longer working at a firm that fought against radical extremists who shackled women, brutalized non-believers and tortured gays. I was now working for extremists who wanted to build their very own dystopia in America and Europe. So this just goes to show exactly what you were saying. Like he thought that if he used this technology to perpetuate what he believed was right, then it would have been okay. But because it's gone completely against what he believes in, somehow now this isn't okay. But actually, was it ever okay in the first place? I think that is exactly it. Because he hits on later in the book, the kind of colonial attitude of Cambridge Analytica. Even when you believe you're on the side of the good guys, but you're actually working for, you know, a psyop for the British government trying to de-radicalise terrorists, you're still believing it from the side of Britain, going like, we're going to do this thing that we think is right for your country. I think even it kind of speaks to and what you were just saying, Renee, is, you know, there's this big machine of persuasive economic capitalism that is just kind of trying to direct people towards products that is still them thinking they know best for you. Even the, the kind of subtle things like your Spotify that is logging all of your listens and going like, you would like this artist, that's still at the behest of some label 
that's kind of paid Spotify or not as direct as that often. And what people want to believe is that just one evil actor like Donald Trump pays a company and they do a bad thing. Whereas it's actually probably through lots of discreet kind of little transactions that somehow an artist that you hadn't cared about turns up in your Discover Weekly and now you're like, oh, I like this person. But people kind of don't care about that up until the point they're told, oh, no, no, you can use this data for bad, such as Trump or Brexit. And I think it's kind of weird that can we draw the line there, if that makes sense, or should it not be drawn earlier that, you know, tech can start making tiny little subtle influences on people's consumption habits. So I want to ask, was there one piece of information that stuck out to you and stayed with you after reading the book? Or do you have like a favourite line or passage that you want to share? The bit for me, like I've said it to people, it's on page, oh, well, on my book, <laughs> 231. Because <laughs> I just don't know if our books are the same anymore. <laughs> But it's basically about Colin Kaepernick and when Nike supported him and how a Russian-linked social media kind of botnet reinvigorated the hashtag boycott Nike. And the reason it stuck with me is because I remember seeing it. <laughs> and I remember people, legit journalists interacting with it and people I follow interacting with it. And basically it was started by the Russian bots in order just to create kind of, you know, hostility amongst the left and the right. You know, Colin Kaepernick was Black Lives Matter, but they basically wanted to create friction and they started tweeting on social media, Facebook, um, Instagram posting using this hashtag and then everyone jumped on. That's the one bit that stood out for me I remember it seeing it in my real life where I apparently can't get targeted by these people and then legit people interacting with it who also think they can't get targeted. Yeah, yeah. And Tristan, what about you? What did you take away with you? I think, yeah, the bits that he's very good on because he's kind of like a psychologist, anthropologist. He mixes all his disciplines together and he's pretty interesting when he talks about, I think, was it The Just World? Let me find the page. Just World Hypothesis, where people basically believe that the world is fair out of like some sort of defense mechanism because they want to basically rationalize the fact that external uncontrollable things could happen to them and then all sorts of injustices happen to people, but they can't and they don't want to believe that that could happen to them. So they kind of believe in like almost karmic justice. And then the flip side of that is therefore they believe in People deserve things that happen to them. And he applies that very well to kind of like when people read news stories about, say, Donald Trump having done something awful or a politician they agree with having said something and being criticised. It makes it the fact that people are very defensive about these figures, even if in the clip they see Donald Trump is being, you know, torn apart by a more astute academic guy. It almost entrenches their belief further that like, well... You know, I don't want any of these injustices to happen to me, so I have to believe that they are fair. As you were talking, I literally did think, well, there is no ethical consumption under capitalism. And I think it's just quite sad because I think after reading this, it's like, well, yeah, what are the options? What just like run away into the woods and just completely be device free or just submit to it? And I think, unfortunately, we're in a position where most of us are just submitting to it. I think a lot of people know what's going on and you know we always joke about oh our phones are listening to us and all these things but I think they are, they are. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. I'm not even joking like they almost certainly are I think 
I'm like a perfect world person that when I walk past like a McDonald's advert on the side of like a bus shelter, I'll think I could kind of go for a Big Mac right now. <laughs> like it's such like an obvious bait advertising trick and it works on me. And I've made my peace with it because I'm like, well, I do like, I do like their god awful burgers. And I think that's kind of the same with loads of like attitudes to kind of the internet. It's like, well, I do like my stupid videos. And even if the algorithm is harvesting, you know, the date of birth and all my darkest, deepest secrets, you know, where am I going to get these good ass videos? Yeah, I think that you can't rewind the clock. It's already in. We're there. They've got our data. And I think every now and then you'll have these boogeymen like, you know, Cambridge Analytica was one and, you know, Edward Snowden and his leak. And you have these boogeymen and then people see the story. And you're like, OK, good. They're, they're stopped. And you're like, we can move on. And then you carry on. But it's just they're just there to kind of distract us and to kind of make us relax again because they know we start to ask questions, questions, questions. And then you need someone to be the bad guy. The bad guy gets taken down. We're safe again. Right. Yeah. The panto villainy of Cambridge Analytica is actually really useful and convenient to like all these people that are still doing various flavors of what they're still doing. What's well, a Facebook, right? Yeah. Exactly. What, whatever happened to Facebook? Oh, okay, their stocks fell the most it ever fell. That's so sad for them. But like five years later, they still have all the power in the world to do whatever they want. And no one can do anything about it because they have all the money to just stop uh, anyone, you know, coming for them. So you're right. I, I really didn't think about it that way that, you know, that actually, if anything, Cambridge Analytica is almost like this front of the shop. And, you know, and if, if it gets closed down, you think, oh, well, the back's no longer operating. But of course it is. That really changed my mind, actually, that little conversation there. After chatting to Rene and Tristan, my opinions about the Cambridge Analytica scandal had evolved even more, which is the whole point of the book club. Sometimes you come in with one opinion and leave with another. So we finally reached the back cover. I asked Tristan and Rene about their reflections and takeaways, as well as the one word that summarises the book for them. I'm very basic with words. Revealing. The way I interact with the internet and the way I see people interact with the internet, it's made me aware of how much we are manipulated, you know, with hate sharing and um, interacting with like, I guess, fake hashtags and things like that. And we will do it because they know exactly what buttons to push. And it's just made me aware that maybe we should only share what we like, which again, isn't good, but maybe something that we truly know, especially like with Cambridge Analytica, we were top level knowledge. <laughs> Um, under the hood who knows and I think we jump on conversations and we just don't know what's under the hood what would be my one word ambiguity for like the moral aspect of it there are all sorts of things that you can point at something and say that's definitely bad everything else that's basically a different shade of that is not so bad and I think that's kind of what this book does but it actually it's kind of useful in that way to make you think back at like what should you and shouldn't you tolerate big tech companies or advertisers or political campaigns doing? I think that's definitely a takeaway for me of trying to work out, you know, what am I objecting to? Is it my distaste for the people that have won or is it like the way they've done it? 
I think my word is, it's dramatic. Everything is heightened. Everything is just so extreme in this book. And it's extreme in the worst ways possible. And who would be the one person you'd give this book to if you'd actually want to give it to anyone? I kind of want to give it to everyone. But I would say my mum, because she is online. You know, those people who shares things and you're like, mum, is that real? I think she needs to read it to understand that half the things she's sharing is not real or used to manipulate so that she does share. I think if I gave it to my mum, that would be like the thing that turned her into like full tinfoil, like cabin in the woods, going, living in a cave. So probably not her. Nick Clegg, who I think is a charlatan and a moron. So you'd give it to Nick Clegg? Nick Clegg. <laughs> he's going to work for Facebook. He was working at Facebook despite having been like the initial guy that's like, I don't think any of this data stuff's worth anything. And then they just get him into like kind of liberal wash the whole platform, implicate their growing political backlash against it. And uh, I just think he's a bit of a stooge. <laughs> You know what? Uh, I can't remember how many times I've used my mum now for this part of the show, but I think I would give it to her because she does share the odd WhatsApp, you know, fake news thing with me. And I remember once she even showed me this video and I watched it and literally within 30 seconds, I like Googled it to just disprove it. I had to call her and, and just explain to her every bit by bit why it was fake. And it was just so easy, you know, it's become so easy to manipulate people. I think sometimes with an article, you can see like, oh, if it's a bit of a dodgy website or it looks a bit, you know, off. But with things like video, you know, mm. if you've got the right soundtrack, you've got someone who sounds like they're, you know, they know what they're talking about. They've got a bit of facts and some good videography. It's so easy to convince people. So I think if anything, like when you read a book like this, it does sound like a conspiracy theory, doesn't mm. it? Mm. And so I think she'd really be interested in it. I think that's like interesting at the level which people kind of congratulate themselves for not falling for like the email saying they're from like some prince who wants to deposit 10 billion pounds in your bank account or like someone ringing up saying you've been in an accident. And you're like, yeah, I know what a scam looks like. But people's literacy, like, I think you take it for granted quite a lot that you'll be able to see through deception just because you can see like the very obvious things. So I think that's quite a good person to give it to, anyone that's like a bit assured of themselves. Thanks to Tristan and Rene for contributing to this episode. And thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club, we'll be discussing Humankind by Rutger Bregman. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voicenotes at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag Broccoli Book Club. And if you liked what you heard, why not leave a review on your favorite podcast app? I've been your host, Diora. You can find me on Twitter at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jaja Mohammed, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Rene Richardson, and mixed by Ben Williams. This is a Broccoli Production. <laughs>